What do you want of me? Get off my world. Get off my world. It belongs to me. If you can't handle rejection, then I think you better leave. You can call us fanatics, but the truth is we're hardcore. We love Hello, people of the time-space continuum. We are back. It's Get Off My World again. Uh, I'm Kelvin. I'm Pat. I'm Joshua. I'm Ariel. And we're here again to discuss Doctor Who, specifically the, the remainder of uh, Jodie Whittaker's most recent season. Uh, and uh, we'll be starting with uh, none other than Nikola Tesla's Night of Terror. Yeah. Uh, for me, this was like the most pure, straight-up fun Doctor Who has been in quite a while. <laughs> oh, my God. It was great. You know, I, I, it, it didn't feel like it was trying to be way over deep or anything, but it was just fun. It was just cool to see Tesla running around, and it was cool to see space scorpion villains. <laughs> and- I had pure nerd joy seeing Thomas Edison running around with a space base laser shooting at giant scorpions <laughs> that is pure doctor who to me that kind of just ridiculousness there used to be a distinction in doctor who fandom between trad adventures and rad adventures the ones that tried to do something more radical with the structure this is very quintessentially trad to me and uh, i think you're right Galvin. is kind of old school and i i dug it on that level but I have to say that where it took over the old school was the performance of the villain was so much better than the old villains. I thought that Scorpion Queen was fantastic. And honestly, I thought that her confrontations with Jodie Whittaker were also some of Jodie Whittaker's strongest moments. Like she just stepped up and swung her baseball bat and the scorpion came back with her tail and it actually felt like really alive. Like it was a good fight. And I also enjoyed the simpleness of the story, given how many characters they had to cram in. With the historical figure, they took this old school children's history program approach like the show originally was supposed to be. And I enjoyed that as well. There's a sort of theme this season of the history of technology. We have or will see Mary Shelley, Ada Lovelace, Tesla and Edison uh, I'm not sure whether that was deliberate or not. It it couldn't be entirely non-deliberate, but that's the theme, if there is one, I think, running through this season of the show. Yeah, it also goes back to the first episode of Jodie Whittaker's run, where I kind of thought one of her traits or tics was going to be this mad inventor vibe, which I really liked. And they dropped it for a long time, but it came back here. And it was great to see her alongside Tesla, both with their steampunk goggles on. (laughs) Yeah, that was the thing I was really hoping was going to set her apart, was she was going to be this madcap inventor. And they only just kind of drop it in occasionally when it fits 
that particular episode. And I think it could have been stronger all the way through. I think that's what could have made her her own doctor. Tesla in particular, I'm going to slaughter this guy's name, the actor who played him. Uh, maybe somebody can help me out, but I thought he was he fabulous. Goran Vishnik. Goran Vishnik. He's, he also played Dr. Kobosh on ER. Yeah, he took over from the Jordan know, they... character. Uh, my my <laughs> wife uh, knew him well before I did uh, mm-hmm. because of exactly that reason. I will say that that guy is great. And if you like him, you should see a movie called The Deep End from 2001 where he uh, plays a... Uh, a guy blackmailing Tilda Swinton. And it's just like a great masterclass in acting and a terrific thriller. I suppose I should point this out. A few years ago, Joshua wrote a play I was in called To Mars with Tesla, which was like kind of a steampunk adventure show in which uh, Joshua played Tesla and I played Edison. So this was kind of like an extra, there was an extra frisson to this, this episode for me. I picked up on this, and I don't know if anyone else did, but Tesla was notorious for having a big touch phobia. Mm-hmm. He hated touching people, and he hated people touching him. And and there's that scene where he's kind of working his way through these protesters, and he's like kind of cringing away from them and everything. And, and there's a scene where um, – oh, God, his assistant's name. Is it Miss Scarrett? I can't remember. But um, – we're like, it looks like they're going to hug. And he's kind of like, no, 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 don't do that. <laughs> uh, and then uh, at the end, he, he shows his appreciation for the doctor by like kind of actually touching her on the shoulder. And the doctor has this like, whoa, kind of look on, on her face from that because she knew what a big thing it was for him to do something like that. And uh, I don't know how much of that was in the script. I don't know how much of that was the director. I don't know how much of that was... Uh, Jody Whitaker and Goran Vishik working it out between themselves or whatever. That was like a really amazing thing for me. It's a nice touch, as it were. Yeah. (laughs) I agree totally. I felt that was so much more effective than had they addressed it in the script. It's rare these days that Doctor Who leaves you anything as the viewer to sort of piece together yourself. And that was just a beautiful moment. And because I've done a lot of research on this when I wrote the Tesla show, I recognize a lot of lines of dialogue that are straight quotes from Tesla and (laughs) from Edison. Uh, The last line about the present is theirs. I work for the future is a quote from Tesla. Real Tesla, not cool space Tesla. (laughs) (laughs) Genuine Tesla. Speaking of the script, uh, this was one that I just kept writing down quotes that I really enjoyed, such as all that it will be left is a trail of blood and other people's brilliance. And you are the queen of shreds and patches. You know, it wasn't afraid to be silly and fun and uh, it didn't need to be deep. And it was I don't know. I just kept giggling a lot throughout this episode. It was, it was like being given a handful of candy. I when the doctor is disappointed by Tesla's lab. It's a great doctor mm. moment. <laughs> Jodie Whittaker doesn't get many great doctor moments, and I thought that was perfect. And uh, Robert Glenister, I think, is fabulous. He's no Kelvin, but he does a really good job as Thomas Edison. I, I want to say about Robert Glenister, too, and the script in general regarding Edison, is that this episode is very much in the new Who tradition of writing historical injustices. There's a point where the doctor actually tells Tesla that essentially he's just cooler than Thomas Edison, uh, which is sort of perceived uh, wisdom now, um, now that we know a little bit more about the relationship between the two. But having said that, Edison actually came off surprisingly well compared to how I might have thought he would be written. 
Robert Glenister does a really good job with the role, uh, and he gets at least one pretty good speech about how his factory is the best idea either of them, Edison or Tesla, ever came up with. And as a Doctor Who secondary kind of minor villain slash uh, helper, he's actually kind of physically brave and helpful, which is more than what you can say for a lot of secondary characters on Who. And actually, I have a thing about this, if you'll indulge me for a second, <laughs> because I think that this is kind of because Chris Chibnall's seasons are the most capitalist-friendly or and neoliberal that Doctor Who has ever been. Like last season's Kerblam, where Amazon was sort of like the, the aggrieved party. Uh, and here, the Doctor says that Tesla should have become the first billionaire, which you might take to mean that uh, Tesla could have become the first billionaire, but in context, it sort of feels like another historical justice injustice that the doctor is addressing. This doctor, Jody Whitaker's doctor, doesn't object to billionaires the way some previous doctors might have objected to them. You kind of wonder what you might think of Elon Musk goggles and building stuff in her garage and making billions of dollars. Well, then they allow Edison to at least argue for himself. And they let the viewer decide if his argument has weight or not. That's I mean, the most important part of this is that Doctor Who rarely does that. They let the viewer decide. They give you gray where they were only ever giving you the black and white. Yeah, Edison is like too big of a historical figure, I think, to like ever be portrayed in a completely witheringly negative way, even though he was kind of a kind of he, he was a jerk. <laughs> He was kind of terrible. He was kind of a terrible jerk, if you really look at what he was like and what he did and things. But he, he still has this kind of elevated place in history, and I don't, I don't think you would ever see a, a popular TV show portray him as, as just a straight-up bad guy. I think there's still a lot of negative stuff about Edison in here. No, it's, it's not. There's also the parallel <laughs> made between Edison and the Scorpion people. It's pointed out specifically, like Edison, there's nothing in here that you invented yourself. They are people who scavenge and take other people's technology and make something out of it. Uh, You know, again, leaves you as the viewer to decide, did Edison make something better out of it? Was he an important part of that process? Or did he, like the Scorpion people, just steal other people's work and take full credit for it? So I think he's far from a, a hero in here. It's just pleasing right. that they don't give him a much. You don't have Jody world. saying, you know, these Scorpion people, they're just like you, Edison, which would have happened in many other episodes. I think its point of view is pretty obvious, but uh, I did enjoy that they resisted the temptation to make Edison like a real vaudeville style mustache twirl. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. So what's the final um, verdict on it? I mean, I think are we plungers up or plungers down on Tesla? I'm plungers way up on it. Yeah, as many plungers as I can plunger up, honestly. I'm plunger up on Nicola as well. Yeah, I'm totally plungers up. We're starting this podcast on a real positive (laughs) plunger up note. I have a feeling that'll change. (laughs) (laughs) Can't keep plunger up for long. And now round two. We are going to be skipping over the Prisoner of the Jadoon uh, to talk about that toward the end of the podcast. And for round two, instead, we're going to jump straight to Praxius by Pete McTie and Chris Chibnall. Pete co-wrote Pat's favorite episode last season, Kerblam. I liked Kerblam. I just had problems with its ideology is all. 
I don't know that this had any ideology other than more environmentalism. Well, this one for me was full of, why are you doing this? It has been a long time since I've had an episode where I had that reaction throughout. For example, when you come upon a beach filled with garbage and trash, why pitch your tent there? There's some nice trees nearby. (laughs) Um, And I found I just had this reaction through the whole thing. Why not just take the computer with you? You know, why don't you run from the birds? Like, just do the smart, not stupid thing, guys. I think this is one of the episodes for me that feels like a lot of stuff was left on the cutting room floor. There's a lot of unexplained random action without a lot of real investment in the characters outside of the actors. I liked a couple of them just because I'd seen the actors and other things. Yeah, it's one of those stories where they were like trying to do too many things. And, uh, you know, it's got this like important thing to worry about plastics pollution, which is extremely bad. (laughs) And it just kind of gets lost in all the subplots, I guess. Yeah, I'm with you. It felt less of a narrative and more like just one thing after another, just kind of continuing to move forward in a sort of drifting fashion. But strangely, that was kind of why I really liked this episode. It was just inhabited by a large supporting cast, like even by Jodie Whittaker standards, this is like a, a ton of people, but they were all extremely good. I thought I was like very impressed with all of the acting in this episode. And the characters were all very likable. And I sort of liked how all of the doctor's companions got their own companions. They were all in different <laughs> parts of the world with their own little sub companion groups. I'm like, That's that I like. Yeah. It was filmed in South Africa, and so it looked great as these beautiful, you know, seascapes and things like that. And very international in scope generally. They're in Hong Kong, they're in England, they're in Peru, they're in Madagascar. To me, it actually felt a lot like the late 90s, early 2000s BBC Doctor Who novels mm-hmm. where they didn't have the budget restraints. And so it's like, oh, Seven Doctors over here and Sarah Jane Smith is over here and a million other characters are all um, go across the world in, in 10 seconds. So weirdly liked this one a lot more than I expected to even the last minute save, which was super emotionally manipulative where they save the astronaut and stuff. I was like, I think I'm just in a very receptive state for emotional manipulation. At this point. <laughs> just fine with it. I just kind of dug it all around. I think that's fair. I think actually the reason I got annoyed with a lot of those moments is that I liked the overall storyline as well. Particularly the opening. The opening made me think something really exciting and intricate was about to happen, but it was just a series of randomly connected exciting bits that stopped after 45 minutes. And so that's where some of my disappointment came from. And I think we're past the midway point. And as Ariel brought up earlier, I'm just exhausted by the number of characters each episode introduces. And so this just hit me in the moment when I watched it. Like, you've got to be kidding me. We've got hikers and a new couple with their relationship issues and the companions with relationship issues. And somewhere buried in the back is the doctor waving her hands for attention. (laughs) And it's just like, I got to just cash out. I think that's fair. Yeah. Another thing that I found myself being a little tired of in this episode and realizing it goes away back is cell phone usage. I, I don't know why it particularly bothers me because we are now in the time of cell phones, but they just end up being like key and integral in so many 
uh, different episodes lately. I just kind of want to take a hammer to each of them so that things are a little more challenging. <laughs> Cell phones, the sonic screwdrivers of 2020. <laughs> well, if we want to talk about the sonic screwdriver, it isn't even a sonic screwdriver anymore. It's a magic wand. What can't right. it do? Yeah. She just needs to go to a planet that's entirely made out of wood. <laughs> um, Submit that script. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I guess where the story kind of broke down for me, I guess, was... Uh, one of my logic things, like you have all the birds that are going nuts because they've been ingesting plastic, but they still seem to act in concert like, as if they're controlled by one group mind or something. It felt like even more than like Hitchcock's The Birds, where like the birds just suddenly st- decide they hate people and are going to kill them. There's more of a birdemic kind of thing. I kept thinking like, oh, it's going to be there's some alien intelligence controlling the birds. And like, nope, they're literally just birds who are in pain and driven crazy but but uh, it still seemed very odd to me that they were like flocking on mass and and they all seem to be the same species of bird this might have just been a cgi budget yeah where probably having all the birds look exactly the same and move in the same direction was cheaper for the special effects department they used up all their money making the giant scorpions run around and smack (laughs) into each other and so they were out of money by the time they got to the birds so are we ready for a final vote on this one? Or does anyone have any exciting additions to add? The only thing that really detracted from my enjoyment of this episode is the crap on those people's faces really triggered my trypophobia. You know that condition <laughs> where it's just like things that are covered with a bunch of little bumps or holes mm-hmm. creep you out? Anyway, I have that. And, and <laughs> seeing crap like that on their faces was like, ah, I hate that. Ah, God. So anyway, that's just personal to me. That's that's something our, our listeners needed to know. about. <laughs> Pat's phobias. We'll be having a special episode on that. <laughs> uh, I'm plunger up on this one. I can't justify it really on a quality level or a narrative level or anything. It just it hit me in the right place at the right time. So plungers up. I'm going to have to say plungers down. I feel that's a throwback to the weaknesses of last season that for the most part this season has avoided. Um, So plunger down. I'm looking forward to Planet of the Wood. (laughs) (laughs) I got to go plungers down on this one too. It just, uh, I I hear this criticism about like science fiction and fantasy all the time. And I, and I always hated it, but it's like, well, you know, the story is just, and then this happens, and then this happens, and then this happens, and then this happens because it's cool. And then this happens because it's cool. That's literally just the whole concept of story. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> in some sense but uh yeah it kind of just felt like that stuff happens and then stuff happens and then stuff happens it didn't cohere for me it's a really tough vote for me i i like the overall story idea the execution was really messy and chock full and it's a very weak plunger down that wavers a little <laughs> uh, plunger horizontal <laughs> It is a plunger horizontal for me because it really canceled itself out for me, but we're not supposed to do that. So Any plunger direction is perfectly acceptable. We don't judge. We have to add that like degrees of the angle. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Next, we are moving on to Can You Hear Me? And I decided to jump in and introduce this one because I wanted to say that I loved the overall color and tone of this episode. I I, I wondered if we were going to be maybe making our way into a Hellraiser episode when I was watching this at first. 
there was a very pinhead vibe and it was just dark and there was some delicious richness of color and shadow and that stuff going on. Absolutely. Yeah, it was had a lot of atmosphere, especially at the top and how it got developed. I will jump right in and say that I really enjoyed this episode a lot. And like Pat said about the last episode, that surprises me because I am I'm not a huge fan of Modern Who's tendency to want to do really topical 2020 issue oriented stuff, at least in such a clear way as this. But I thought this did it so well, it won me over because unlike Praxis, which we just spoke about, it has a very simple science fiction premise that leaves enough room to spend the time with the characters and the companions and their fears, as well as just being atmospheric and scary, with the exception of the finger thing. I'm not sure if that, from a special effects point of view, works. It's a little sillier than I think it wanted to be. But I like the rest of it so much, I'm willing to forgive it. I did too. I really liked the monsters and I really liked the way they tricked them into helping them. In particular, I thought that Ian Gelder, who played the big bad, uh, Kevin Lannister mm-hmm. from Game of Thrones, by the way, uh, was terrific. Yeah, I thought he was phenomenal. Nice references, of course, for old Who fans, talking about the Celestial Toymaker, the Guardians, and the Eternals. And, and that's the way to do this kind of thing, because uh, making this character the Celestial Toymaker and, and putting baggage like that, onto the story would have been terrible, but a little throwaway to connect that this is the same general kind of being was perfect. And this is another great story in which it isn't part of some 20 episode drama. You're going to have to figure out. It's just an episode. This might be my favorite episode of the season, but I find that I don't actually have a lot to say about it. It worked for me kind of as a whole, except for the sort of interminable mushy ending where we spend about 10 minutes or so exploring the feelings of all of the companions, which all of which could have been cut as far as I'm concerned. But I thought the rest of it was super solid. Even if I didn't totally know why we were in Aleppo, Syria in the year 1380, which is the first time, by the way, that the show has gone back to the Middle East since the William Hartnell days. I think I'm not yeah. sure, not sure why we were in Syria in the first place, but there we are. And I think it was just the, the symbolism of a of a hospital. Uh, well, the doctor says specifically because it was one of the earliest mental yeah. hospitals. Okay. So it connects up, obviously, with uh, nightmares and mental illness and an area of history that is ignored, yeah, as well as a, a location that is ignored by Doctor Who. Can I also mention that at one point, Tahira says something is, quote, important to her mental well-being, which is such a 21st century way of constructing things that is very, it's very on brand for the season of Dr. Who, which is just disregarding all attempts at period dialogue whatsoever. The Tesla episode was full of this too. It's like, Mm -hmm. no, no one took the least bother to try to talk like somebody might've in 1900, which I'm kind of okay with, you know, it's, it could be super artificial to try to talk in some stilted early 20th century, or in this case, 14th century way, but uh, it does still sort of jar a little bit to me when people are using 21st century constructions and and jargon. I think the TARDIS is just having fun with its translating powers. Oh, right. You can blame so much on the TARDIS's translating powers. (laughs) I would like, before we leave this episode, to discuss the controversial end with Graham and the Doctor. So controversial that the BBC released a statement clarifying the doctor's 
intent in that conversation. Did you guys read about that? I did not. I know it was controversial. They thought the doctor's response to Graham was too insensitive and that she would never be dismissive or not give him a big hug or whatever they wanted her to do. That's very doctor-like, though. The doctor doesn't always tap into feelings. Sometimes the doctor doesn't get human feelings. He doesn't jibe with them. There's been this thing with this era of Doctor Who where the emotional support and, and reassurance character is Graham. When it usually is the doctor, you know, like say the third doctor, you know, reassuring Joe Grant or the fourth doctor reassuring Sarah Jane Smith or something like that, you know, and there, there was kind of a reversal here. So now it's Graham looking for reassurance and the doctor all of a sudden doesn't know what to do, which on one level is kind of on brand with how the new series tends to treat the doctor. On the other hand, I had a hard time thinking the doctor literally wouldn't know what to say in that situation. I think it might speak a little bit to how unfocused Jodie Whittaker's performance as the doctor has been, I'm sorry to say. Peter Capaldi... Nobody's giving her anything to develop. Yeah. It, yeah. Well, you look at like Peter Capaldi's run on the doctor. His doctor was very different between seasons one, two, and three. He, he played yes. the doctor in very different ways, but it felt like a narrative. It felt like a progression, like he was developing the character over that time. And, uh, you know, two seasons through Jodie Whittaker's run, I'm still sort of struggling with who she is, what she knows, what kind of emotional intelligence she has, because a lot of it is, seems very performative to me. It feels like she's kind of playing at being David Tennant a lot of the time. And I know she's a good actor and I've seen her in a lot of other things, but it's not really sparked for me, like what the character of this doctor is. As an actor, I watch it and I say, all she can do is act on the line. She's not given any real through story in any of these. And she gets five lines in the show and she just tries to make the best out of that line that she can. I mean, I just don't see a character for her. To say something positive, though, about Whitaker's performance here, with the lines she says to Graham in that moment, she does a really great job with. When she says, I'm socially awkward and I'll probably think of the right thing to say later, She's apologizing for herself and fans and people reacted as if she said, you know, shut up about your cancer, Graham, (laughs) like booted him out of the TARDIS. I thought it was a a little over the top and tells you a little of what the fans want Jodie Whittaker's doctor to be, or at least the vocal Twitter type of fans. I don't know, but I thought it was a really nice moment. Well performed by Whittaker. Well, let's go ahead and put this up to a vote. Other than thinking the end had a little bit of an easy fix, I'm going to give it a plungers up. Yeah, I'm with you. Uh, I thought the ending was super mushy and went on forever, but it was, generally speaking, my favorite of the entire season. And we should mention it has an animated interlude, which is the first time that Doc Televised has ever done anything like that. Experimenting with form in that way is not usually something that Doctor Who does. So that by itself would have been enough to make me sit up and pay attention. But I thought it was super creepy all around. I liked the story. I liked the plot. And I thought the acting was was very strong. This is probably my favorite one of the season. So plunger definitely, definitely up. I would also give it a plunger up. And again, uncharacteristically, I like the mushy ending. Again, it's in comparison to the rest of Whitaker's era, where I feel like they took the time to show you things about the characters Whereas in other jam-packed episodes, they're just telling you about these characters. And so, again, I enjoyed the room, the simple story made for the character moments. So, plunge her up. 
I'm a plunger down. Uh, I just had kind of this issue of creating these, you know, God powerful villains who are brushed aside. You know, like there wasn't a lot of reason for like how and why they were defeated. But that's what mental illness is like. It feels insurmountable, but you just need to talk about it, Kelvin. Why do you hate people who feel sad, Kelvin? I had a problem with like how the doctor escapes by hip checking the sonic screwdriver out of her coat and into her hand. I'm not sure how that works. And like why a god powerful character would like, oh yeah, I'm just gonna leave you like your your omni tool with you so you can get loose. I really wasn't that into this story. I just wasn't. Is this your Whitaker Moon Dragon? <laughs> it's, it's not quite that bad, but I, I was just kind of annoyed by it. It's all right, Kelvin. This is how our listeners know we're not a hive mind. It's okay. Yes. Yeah. So for our third round, we're going to talk about episode eight, The Hunting of Villa Diodati. Or rather, I'm going to talk about the haunting of Villa Diodati because, boy, do I have <laughs> things to say about this. You guys, this has been my year of Frankenstein. I don't know if you if you knew this, but, like, ever since the beginning of the year, it's just been Frankenstein, Frankenstein, Frankenstein for me. Uh, my wife, Carrie, and I have been watching all the old universal horror films. We're just up to Creature of the Black Lagoon, so we're almost done with everything. But there's, like, tons and tons of Frankenstein. In addition to that, I recently read Kim Newman's uh, collection of short stories, Anno Dracula 1899, which has tons of stories about Frankenstein in it. I read Kieran Gillen's comic, The Wicked and the Divine, which has a very good version of the Mary Shelley Villa Diodati story in it. And just a few weeks ago, I finished reading Jeanette Winterson's novel, Frank Kiss Stein, which is highly recommended. It's very funny and thought-provoking. It's kind of a mashup between Mary Shelley's biography and a bunch of Wired articles about artificial intelligence and Ray Kurzweil's singularity. And so I'm just like full of stuff about Frankenstein. And, you know, while I'm on the subject, I should also give a shout out to Tim Powers' 1989 supernatural novel, The Stress of Her Regard, which also tells the story of the Villa Diodati. And, you know, thinking about it, for further viewing, if our listeners are really interested in this story, there was kind of a rash of films on this Shelley Byron subject in the mid to late 80s, about the same time that Tim Powers was writing his novel. I'm not sure why this happened at the time exactly, but there was Ken Russell's film Gothic from 1986, which a bunch of people probably would have seen with Gabriel Byrne, Julian Sands, and Natasha Richardson. There was Ivan Passer's 1988 Haunted Summer with Eric Stoltz, Alice Krieg, Laura Dern, and Alex Winter, who was, of course, Bill from Bill and Ted as Dr. Polidori. Wow. And the same year, Rowing with the Wind, directed by Gonzalo Suarez, with Hugh Grant as Byron, Elizabeth Hurley as Claire Claremont. They actually met on this film and later got married. Turns out Liz Hurley's a Brexiter, by the way, which I find disappointing because I've had a long-standing crush on her. <laughs> anyway, my point here is that there's just been a lot of Frankenstein in my life this year, and I don't think that this one really measured up to most of the things that I've just described. I may be giving away my plunger position a little too quickly here, but <laughs> I had a lot of issues with this story, but uh, I've gone on for a while now. So uh, I'll unmute the rest of you and let you join. <laughs> well, you know, yes, I also had a lot of issues with this story and uh, two of them are very 
deep Doctor Who rooted issues with this story. Uh, number one, everybody's in period clothes except the doctors in a raincoat. And why bother having everybody else dress up in period coats if you're just going to show up in your wellies? I don't know. That really bothered me. That's a smaller one. But the big one that really got me was that they chose to show up on this really important night where if they screw this up, it's going to screw up timelines and all of the things. And they're just coming to be bystanders. It's not even like they think they need to show up to make sure something important happens. They just want a good ghost story. And to think that they would put so much at risk just for that ghost story really pissed me off. It's sort of highly arbitrary that this story takes place in this particular place, too, right? Because as it turns out, it's not really about Byron or Shelley or Frankenstein or anything. It's about the Siberium. And there's a tenuous connection, I suppose, between the idea of Mary Shelley's creation of artificial life in her novel and this and the Cybermen. But it's very thin, right? Uh, this turns out to be the, the first in a three-part story that ends the season, but you would never know it from just the setup of it. It seems like another historical romp like Nikola Tesla or Ada Lovelace. Well, I'm going to go against the grain and say that I actually enjoyed this episode. And it's interesting because I enjoyed it for some of the reasons that Ariel said it annoyed her because I felt like to me, this was one of the episodes this season where I really believe that Jodie Whittaker was the doctor because she did things like show up just to amuse herself at this really critical night, tell everyone, don't mention Frankenstein, and then just to get out of dancing <laughs> with everybody. And she goes, hey, what about Frankenstein? And just breaks her rule immediately. I felt like that's a great doctor moment. The fact that she made everyone else dress up in period clothing and didn't bother herself. She does wear a dress. It's not her normal under-the-raincoat outfit. She's wearing, like, a dark blue polka-dotted shirt dress. Oh, well, then I take it all back. <laughs> <laughs> not exactly, period, no. But it's, it's kind of like, you know, the fourth doctor suddenly wearing a, a tam because he's in Scotland. I think part of my positive reaction was I had such low expectations because I am a big fan of the Big Finish Eighth Doctor Mary Shelley audios. Uh, including the one that they directly ripped this off from with a Cyberman in it written by Mark Platt. I think we discussed it many years ago, the Silver Turk. The Silver Turk, yeah. Yeah, I, it's better than this, of course. But I thought this was going to be much worse than it was. And I felt like for an episode that had as many balls in the air as this one did, I thought it was paced really well and had a lot of surprises from scene to scene as most of the episodes are in this season. It has a little too much in it, but I thought this one handled too much better than others. <laughs> it, you know, and I admit that part of my distaste for this episode, and it's it, distaste is too strong. Disappointment is maybe more like it. It's because it's sort of clumping all over my turf. I mean, this is this English literature stuff is thing is stuff that's fairly close to my heart and I know a fair amount. So this felt a little bit like a Disneyland tour of Byron and Shelley. And on the one hand, that's pretty economical in a narrative way, because one solution to these overcrowded stories that we're talking about with all of these non-player characters, secondary characters, is that if you pick a bunch of reasonably well-known people, you can just pitch in the bare minimum of character detail and characterization and expect that the audience will be able to follow but then the downside of that is that you tend to sort of 
clicheify, that's not a word, but you know, you tend to pick historical sides in a situation like this. The story is clearly on the side of Percy Shelley being like the sympathetic figure. He's the one victimized by the Siberium. And Byron is a is a cad. He's a physical coward who hides behind Claire Claremont. And yeah. Byron died a few years after this, eight years after this, fighting with the Greek revolutionaries. You know, he was not a physical coward. He may have been a, a male chauvinist and a kind of a predator by modern standards, but he was not the kind of coward that he was portrayed here. And I mean, Shelley had abandoned a wife and a child in England too. You wouldn't know that he was sort of questionable in the same way that Byron was just by watching this episode. And I know I'm nitpicking, you know, but it just, to introduce historical characters into a narrative is to select elements of them that you want to highlight and downplay other ones. And here it seemed especially arbitrary. Claire Claremont, by the way, and Dr. Polidori never come off well in any of these stories. No. <laughs> always secondary characters. Claire is totally wet and, and, and just sort of put upon. And Dr. Polidori is always a kind of sinister creep. My favorite character was actually Fletcher the valet, who gives the best side eye I've seen since anybody, it sends Kiff from Futurama. <laughs> that guy was terrific. I loved him. Agreed. I think something that happened for me in this is the arbitrary. Sometimes people have abilities and sometimes they don't. Like suddenly the doctor is mind melding when we haven't really seen that put into play for some time. And suddenly she's got the like Vulcan touch and it's, it, and we, we've seen that sort of happen before, but it kind of makes me think of, of the convenience of the writers being like, Oh, Hey, let's bring that back. Cause we want to use this skill right now. Whereas it could have been very useful in other episodes, but we didn't want to give them that out. So the time Lords have powers of narrative shortcut. I mean, that's been established for 50 years of history. Yeah. The respiratory bypass system back in <laughs> yeah. the Android invasion days. No, I hear you, uh, Ariel. It's like when they gave Spock the inner eyelid that Vulcans apparently all have to protect him from being blinded back in the yeah. Star Trek original series days. But yeah, the Doctor is just apparently telepathic now. We just have to accept that. Well, you know what? I liked it. I had a good time with it, and I, I'm kind of alone in this opinion, but I way, way, way more like the Cybermen when they're kind of emotional. I find the the super emotionless robotic death machine uh, Cybermen, frankly, boring. You know, I like seeing the sort of damaged, half put together Cyberman, like really just just hating people. <laughs> and I thought that made him way more interesting. I kind of liked, and this could have been done really badly, but you know, like uh, Byron is sort of hitting on the Doctor, and the Doctor just shuts it down. <laughs> that could have been handled really grossly and and I don't think it was. But yeah, I liked the weird Escher house stuff. I like the spider hand thing running around. I, I, um, I like Graham's ghost encounters that were never explained. Yeah. And I like that it happened to Graham. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> While he was looking for a bathroom and looking for something to eat. He was just mm. like the id of the <laughs> TARDIS crew for that episode. I like that it was never explained. They were all like, oh, no, the ghost had nothing to do with it. <laughs> no such thing. Hey, you guys, I have a question. What was that little tete-a-tete that Yaz had with Claire about? Is she in love with the doctor? Is that what we're supposed to get from that? I think so. Yeah. I mean, I have seen no indication of that in any of the other 
episodes from this season or the previous one. So it kind of came as a surprise to me. Well, <laughs> listeners, you can't see Ariel's face, but it's awesome. <laughs> I just, the romance in any of these is the big downfall of the modern Doctor Who. I think it's disgusting. I think it's unnecessary. And I think it ruins the Doctor Companion relationship. So also it's, it's like vampires and I, I, I he's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years older. That's just not okay. But, you know, as far as this episode goes, you know, I would say my plunger wavered for quite a while because there were some aspects that were really cool. But as much as you you like that Cyberman, and I do kind of like the representation of the Cyberman with angry feelings and that sort of thing, I realized that that was going to be our lone Cyberman and we were going to be off on another long, dramatic Doctor Who origin story, blah, 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 which is the other downfall of the modern Doctor Who for me. Mm -hmm. I just like episodes that are just episodes that are really cool, just episodes. (laughs) Plunger down for you, huh? Plunger down for me in the end. Yeah, it's obviously a plunger down for me too, although it's not way down. It's just like a little bit lower than horizontal. And it kind of, again, it wavers a little bit. I, I will say I was happy that they did end with Byron reading part of his poem, Darkness. So at least mm-hmm. uh, we are acknowledging why these people are remembered in the first place. They did miss a real opportunity, though, to not have a reference to Shelley's famous quotation that poets are the unacknowledged legislators of the world when the doctor is making the case that Shelley was yep. important to the web of time. If I were doing a rewrite on this, I would have included that. <laughs> but anyway, I digress. Maybe uh, Kelvin can use that in his Planet of Wood. Plunger sort of wobbling, but facing down. Pat, I would like this episode better if you rewrote it, for sure. Thank you, Erica. I'm going to go ahead and say plunger up, and I'm surprised by that. One of the things I loved about this episode, and it was a small moment, is the inversion of new Who tropes when Mary Shelley gives the heart-wrenching speech about the lone Cyberman's children, and it looks like she's connecting with the Cybermen emotionally, and then he's like, yes, I slit their throat and watch them burn. <laughs> and I was like, yes! For once, hugging it out doesn't work in the new series, so I thought that was a great moment. Yeah, it, it was almost like the 12th Doctor meeting Davros, and it looks like Davros is genuinely sorry for what he's done. <laughs> That, that actually suckered me in at the time. And I was like, is he connecting with like the human part of, of the cyber? End? Nope, human part's gone. But yeah, I'm plungers up on this one. I had a good time with it. I thought it was a good overall old school spooky kind of Doctor Who story. And uh, yeah, my only real quibble with it is that, you know, it kind of erases those, those eighth Doctor audios where he's with Mary Shelley. <laughs> We are now going to discuss Fugitive of the Jadoon, uh, written by Chris Chibnall and Vinay Patel. And we will also be discussing, of course, uh, Ascension of the Cybermen and uh, The Timeless Children, which I believe Chibnall wrote both of those on his own. He put on his big boy pants and wrote them all. Put on his big boy pants and just wrote them. And we're discussing this all as a group because they're so uh, connected with each other. I will start out by saying I, I was really worried about Fugitive of the Jadoon. The Jadoon were not exactly my favorite new series monsters. I was worried it was going to be kind of like a trying too hard to be wacky story, but it, it really doesn't go that way. And, well, I, I gotta admit, I did not see 
the revelation coming at all. Yeah. The only thing that kind of made me grit my teeth a little bit was the uh, the Jack Harkness cameos. <laughs> okay, we have to cram like a whole season's worth of Jack Harkness into like a few lines here. So he's like way over the top. My favorite part is that they acknowledge that this character was created 15 years ago. He does not stand the test of time. This is not how they would present a bisexual character in Doctor Who today. And I love the fact that Ryan's like, he's a little cheesy, but I guess he's okay. <laughs> he has this very 2020 perspective, like, wait, this is the character you guys are all so excited about and want to have come back to Doctor Who? Uh, it worked yeah. for me on that level too, Josh. Um, it's a strange episode because it, under normal circumstances, Jack coming back would have been like, cool enough. That would be enough for an episode to build uh, its story around. But here he's basically superfluous. And there's an entire other giant revelation that the story is actually about. Uh, and apparently it is true. Like Ryan and all the other companions have to comment on how camp Jack is. <laughs> and I, I admit that Barrowman really turned up the dial on that. This episode is <laughs> really, really playing it to the hilt. It does always bug me when a show comments on itself in that sort of way. It, it's not to the level of the supporting cast applauding David Tennant in Planet of the Dead, but it still rubs me the wrong way. For the most part, I was fine with it, though. I like Barrowman. I like Captain Jack. And if you're going to make fun of him being camp, that's okay. That's okay. I thought the show did a great job with its bait and switch as to who the Jadun were after. Uh, I, I thought that was really, really well orchestrated. Um, I was not waiting for that shoe to drop. I thought the the scene where she just takes out the Jadoon is awesome. Like when she just takes the gun and takes over in that moment, like as a person who's in a lot of fight combat, that moment was excellently executed. Mm-hmm. You all know my long complaint about the, the needing to have intricate, deep, historic uh, uh, storylines in Doctor Who. So when she said, when we found out she was the doctor, I have to admit I rolled my eyes and groaned. Um, I would have preferred her to have been a different Time Lord, but I, I like the character quite a lot. I love that she's the Doctor. And I also feel bad for Jodie Whittaker that she's the Doctor, because I feel like in one episode, Joe Martin so effortlessly waltzed in, established the character, and was hugely appealing. I want more. Either if they don't bring her back for next season, then give the license over to Big Finish as soon as possible. <laughs> I'm going to go a little bit against the grain here and say that I, I did not find her like super appealing as the doctor, partly because I felt the whole thing was a little bit of a stunt. And so she was stepping into the role and kind of playing the idea of the doctor. Having said that, I like her a lot as an actor, and I would have happily watched a cozy BBC dramedy about her life as a tour guide in Gloucester. I thought <laughs> those opening scenes were tremendous. They are. Hugely fun. I liked the jerky cafe owner. I loved all of that stuff a lot. Uh, when she became the doctor, I was like, well, this is going to take me a little time to get used to it because it always takes me a little time for anybody taking over the role of the doctor. I bought her quicker than I did John Hurt. Yeah, that's fair. John Hurt had a similar thing where he had to just immediately step into it. I guess I just know John Hurt from 40 years of his roles. So maybe it felt a little more natural to me. And maybe it's just unacknowledged, like I see white men in the role and it seems more natural to me than women or people of color. And maybe that's just a thing in my head that I need to get around. 
It could well, be I, that I just prefer the prickly doctors. Um, so she played a much more prickly version of the doctor than Jodie Whittaker plays. And I'm always on board for that a little quicker. It's and just that's the side I like of the doctor's persona. And there's huge cultural differences between older white men being prickly and women of color being prickly that poke at different parts of what our expectations are and what we find natural and what we find appealing, um, depending on whether we're a, a white middle-aged guy like I am or someone else. And I'll go with you, Joshua. I like her doctor, actually. I think she's sharp. Uh, I think she's interesting. It just felt very modern who to be like, oh, guess what? Dun, dun, dun. I'm the doctor. Well, we have to get used to that because now anybody who ever shows up in Doctor Who starting out could have been the doctor at some point. Yep. Ariel, you could be the doctor. Pat, you could be the doctor. <laughs> Kelvin, eh, maybe. There are no bald doctors. <laughs> yes, in my headcanon now, there's a whole lot of people who are actually the doctor. Emma Peel was the doctor. <laughs> Adam Adamant and Jason King and the rest of it. Spock was a doctor. You know, it's just we're getting into Mike Moorcock eternal champion area here. We're like everybody is the doctor, but I guess that's the way it's going to be now. Also, shouldn't there be some kind of time explosion if the two doctors meet each other? They're in the same place at the they same time. They do mention the Blinovich limitation effect. I think they discussed the fact that they might not remember everything right after meeting each other, and that might be why one of them doesn't remember the other. So it's thrown out there, but they want to keep it kind of mysterious at that point so we don't know where in the timeline Dr. Ruth fits. Oh. And I suppose there are things like the five doctors where four out of five of them decided to show up and talk to each other. Yeah, it's deliberately ambiguous here. It gets explained later on, obviously, where the Joe Martin doctor fits in with continuity. But when I was watching this for the first time, my headcanon was, of course, because she says she's she moved to Gloucester in mid-December of 1999 which is basically the time the TV movie takes place. <laughs> so my feeling was that she was probably an alternate universe doctor that Sylvester McCoy regenerated. Into. <laughs> there was not a Paul McGann that actually turned into Joe Martin, which I, I kind of prefer to the actual explanation, but we'll see. <laughs> there's one little weird bit of trivia here. Uh, it's supposed to be Ruth's 44th birthday. And 44 years ago, the episode of Doctor Who that showed was The Brain of Morbius. Oh. Uh, which has... Clever. The sure, image sure possible past doctors. <laughs> Should we do plungers up, plungers down? or Yeah, let's, let's do it. I think this is a standalone enough episode. Let's, let's Pl- do our... Plungers up here. on this one. Plungers up for me. Yeah, plungers up for me too. Plunger way up. This was my probably favorite of the season because I just had no idea what was going to happen. The pace was fantastic. I loved Captain Jack's cameo, and I'm not even that much of a fan of Captain Jack, just in that it was just acknowledged that it was just a blatant plug. But beware the bloated two-part finale. <laughs> it might as well have been his warning. Um, but like again, because they incorporated the cheesiness of the character in the cheesiness of the cameo and the defying expectation that he shows up and doesn't even get to meet the Doctor, fantastic. As Pat mentioned, I love the opening scenes of this episode with the... Oh, the cake guy was great. The cake guy was great. And just the idea of the doctor as a tour guide who's desperate for companions, because that's what she's doing. Hey, 
come along with me and I'll show you around. And everyone's like, no, <laughs> that was beautiful. So yeah, plunger way up. I mean, mainly Chibnall is great at setups and terrible at payoffs. So this is like the ideal Chibnall episode because it's all set up with no payoff. And so yeah. in that way, it's like the flawless Chibnall episode. He doesn't have to deliver at all an ending. He's Chibnall. <laughs> I'm a plunger up on this. Absolutely. Uh, I, I had a fine time with it. I wasn't sure where it was going for a while, but that was to the story's overall benefit really. And Hey, you know, maybe we're going to get some Ruth doctor uh, audios at some point. Who knows? All right. So let's talk about the two part finale together. Really. I don't think we need to really separate them unless someone desperately wants to dissect them as two separate works of art. No. In a lot of ways, it's a three-part finale because mm-hmm. the, the Diodati episode turns out to be the first real uh, installment in this three-part thing. And, you know, a lot of new series conclusions seem to suffer from the problem that the second to last episode is just sort of a time waster mm-hmm. before the last big one. Think of like Christopher Eccleston's season and the weakest link episode that led into mm-hmm. the the Daleks. Oh God. Yeah. Or even, you know, um, Capaldi's last season with the much, much, much better Cyberman story on the space station that led into the revelation that the John Sim master was back. So in retrospect, this one kind of like moves the revelation one episode earlier. So that leaves the second to last episode as being not really much of anything to, at least to my mind. Yeah. Yeah. It makes me think of like playing D and D when, you don't want to get to the end uh, quite yet. Your 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 players are, are desperate for more action, so you do a sort of a filler night of gaming in which you could have done it all in like ten sentences and moved on to the to the grand finale. Yeah, I don't know what really happened, particularly in Ascension of the Cybermen. I I liked that Doctor Who went to Ireland for the first time in its history, as far as I can tell. I I don't remember any big finish or novel even that is ever taken place in Ireland, which is a big oversight when you think of it. Uh, Too bad it turned out to just be a Matrix fantasy. Yeah, I was wondering, like, what was the point of having presumably the Doctor live a lifetime as an Irish Garda? It's hard to figure out what time frame it is, but I'm guessing, like, roughly like the 19th, 1920s to like the 1970s maybe yes that is exactly what it is Kelvin because you can you can tell that time is passing because when Mm -hmm. Brendan retires you can see a black guy in the scene who looks like Phil Linnett from Finn Lizzie so (laughs) he's clearly retiring in the 19 the late 1970s probably but as far as I can tell from the story, it's just a shell memory. It never happened. It's just a, a thing laid on top of the timeless child memory. But Here's my reading of it, is that he chose, I don't know why Ireland, but he chose this representation to put over the doctor's memory that is a mid-20th century cozy setting full of white male patriarchal figures who are protectors, policemen, they put that over the top of a scene. It's a woman in charge talking to two time lords of color. And to me, I felt like this was saying the doctor forgot who she really was. Cause we see the timeless children are all ethnicities, all genders. And then for some reason, when they block her memories, she just becomes white men for <laughs> 12 regenerations or however many. And I felt like there was almost an aesthetic explanation for that. Cause otherwise 
it's really troubling because the story tells us that there's some subconscious control over regeneration. It, is the doctor been a white supremacist for 12 regenerations then? Oh, God. I'm kind of with you on that, Josh. I, I can sort of see where you're going with that. Um, the thing is, though, that like Ireland in the mid 20th century is about the least cozy place that you could have chosen. Yeah. To it, it seems to me, in part, to say authority is good, rulemakers are good police and everything that's going to to tell you what the rules are and the law is is good which the time lords take over being the police of the world so maybe it's it's sort of a setup or their excuse for saying well we should all be cops it was totally okay for us to do this because we're the best cops in the world i think there's a real conscious decision to portray a very diverse early time lord society and then with the perception filter make it predominantly white and use a time span that mirrors the classic series. Well, and it's true that if you set it in Ireland in that period, you're going to get some of the whitest people ever. I mean, it was far less diverse in the 20th century than England was in that time. Not that England was particularly full of people of color until the late 1940s either. But yeah, I don't know. It just... Demiotically, it's just very kind of scrambled for me. I don't really know why it's in Ireland. I think you're right, Ariel, that it's a little bit of Time Lord copaganda there, <laughs> where they're using the Doctor as a as their cop tool and then turning out to be sinister in the end, which is a very typical 21st century liberal position on police and one that is entirely accurate. But we're not really talking about any of the other parts of the <laughs> Is there anything really to talk about? I don't... It's just generic right. future people running around, getting killed and not getting killed. I found the only it- notes I have is shoot them with their own ship. Like at one point they're in the Cyberman ship. Why don't they just turn around and blast all the other Cybermen to hell with the Cyberman ship that they have acquired? They have to get through the 42 minutes, I think. You know, there were a few things I liked about this episode. I liked the space cyber graveyard with all the floating Cybermen. And I liked the spooky dark ship with the army of marching Cybermen with the blue lights on their heads and chests. But it's mostly imagistic. You know, I liked those things. The floating Cyberman head, again, just seemed like a low-budget fallback because they already had the Cyberman head design. Um, it is like the floating fingers. It seemed a little absurd. It made me snicker. Not as much as the Cyberman Time Lord outfit. <laughs> that made me laugh out loud. <laughs> yeah. I liked it, but yeah. I did too, actually. I see where you're coming from on that. It could, it could make you guffaw a little bit. Right at the beginning, I liked that everything they set up just got blown to hell immediately. Like all their tools and gadgets and gadgets went boom. Can I also say that the directing is very flat? This whole last couple of episodes is like this. I I used to criticize Russell Davies and Murray Gold all the time for schlocking up every emotional note. But I guess be careful what you wish for because here the emotional affect of every scene is absolutely flat, muted, and identical. You know, like there's no highs and lows anywhere. It's just kind of all of a surface. Yeah, there's nothing that makes it stand out at all. Is it the same director for the second episode? No, yeah, it is the same guy. Jamie Magnus Stone? I'm, ass- I'm assuming that's a-, a male. I don't know. but I thought the second episode had some nicer uh, directorial bits in it. Did anyone catch the Star Wars shot that's in the second episode? The Obi-Wan shot? 
No. There's a moment with the old man where he's going around a pillar and the Cybermen are going by and it's almost identical to the shot where Obi-Wan is going around the pillar <laughs> and, the, and the Stormtroopers are going by. Oh, yeah, when he's turning off the tractor beam. Yeah. Yeah, it's almost identical. That's the guy who played Barristan Selmy in Game of Thrones, by the way, uh, Ian McElhinney. And so, yeah, he's positioned as the Obi-Wan character. In the Doctor last- Who, where Game of Thrones actors go to die. No kidding. I mean, I mean, literally and figuratively. Well, how, how many actors were in Game of Thrones? 80 bajillion? I don't know. All of them. So I guess we're going to talk about the Timeless Children now. Yeah. Because we're, we're moving on from Ascension of the Cybermen, which I give a plungers down to. Plungers down. Down. Plunger horizontal. <laughs> Timeless Children is essentially 40 minutes of exposition. 66 minutes. Oh, yeah, wow. there's some action toward the end. I'm being generous. And we move the doctor, I think, back to the season one ineffectual doctor who just gets talked at and held captive and doesn't do much. I don't know if anybody follows Lance Parkin on social media, but uh, his description of this episode was, I am the master and this is my TED talk. (laughs) (laughs) That's very apt. So let's just talk about the um, the timeless children in the room, the elephant-sized timeless children in, in the room. Well, I, you know, I did more reading about this, actually, than I've done reading about episodes or opinions or that sort of thing, and whether this can or can't work with the timeline and all of that. And and my end result saying is that the storyline makes sense for me, frankly, that the, the, the people who, who end up becoming the Time Lords who, who steal this ability, I mean, we kind of see that they're grandiose assholes, and it doesn't really surprise me at all that they would steal somebody else's ability and take over policing the world. Like it, it completely works for me, actually. It's not a radically different interpretation of the Time Lords. And I think that's part of the problem of the story. Like the master's rage um, is like, I thought they were one kind of hypocritical asshole. They're actually a different kind of hypocritical asshole. Burn it all to the ground. That doesn't track to me. I took that as... You know, the master finds out about the doctor's true background. And I took it as like like a really like intense envy thing. Yeah, he's jealous that the doctor is the one. And as he says that there's a little doctor in him, that tracks. You know, he was so upset by that that he he felt the need to destroy Gallifrey, I guess. I I was surprised how much I, I got involved in this story, even though it is very much just kind of the master lecturing. I always wanted to see Doctor Who do something with pre-Rassalonic history uh, when finally it happens. I, I was kind of shocked that like the, they mentioned the Shabogans as the indigenous people of Gallifrey. Mm-hmm. I thought it was kind of amazing that like, you know, Gallifrey and the Time Lords got started by basically this one woman who's just like, I'm going to explore space. I'm going to actually build a, a, a ship with the interstellar travel and just go out there. Uh, that's so tech to Yeah. <laughs> and honest to God, the cyber Lords scared the bejesus out of me. I, I was really unbelievably horrified when I, when I saw them show up, it was like upsetting in a way, doctor who hasn't been horrifying and upsetting to me in, in a really long time. Can I give you a plus one on that reaction to the Cyberlords, Kelvin? Uh, for yeah. me, I also found them extremely upsetting. Yeah. Uh, I ascribe that mostly to Sasha Dewan as the master. We joke about it, it's the master's TED Talk or whatever, but 
he really sold this the whole episode long. He was really working it. And I just watched it again today for the second time. And typically for all of new who the second time through, I like episodes a lot better than I. Oh yeah. Yeah. I have a lot more anxiety about what I'm about to see when I see it. (laughs) Yes. But, um, But this one, I was really able to focus on, wow, he's very, unpleasant it's really a frightening performance no, I, uh, so much he builds up those cyber lords so when they show up it is very frightening yeah i enjoy his 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 version of of the master you know with the with the caveat of you know it's a new who jokery kind of master rather than an old who lex luthery kind of master but it's uh, it's a killing joke joker and that's where i think yeah. he, he sells this harder there's real murderous hate underneath the jokes yes that's what makes it work for me yeah he isn't just totally crazy like john sims was he he won me over even though i i really felt like it was too soon to bring the master back just in general yeah i was upset that it kind of wiped out the whole character of missy pretty much missy's my favorite thing about the new who i swear to god Missy was great, and, uh, you know, they bring the master back, and it felt like Missy erasure. You know, I also just kind of hoped they had the courage to end something. Like, the master could just be done. I would like to see more who that doesn't rely on calling back what it thinks we love and just has the courage to write its own episodes. As much as I liked this particular story, I am more than ready for the master and the Cybermen to take a long nap. What if this had been the Ronnie? You yeah, know? No. that would have been super cool. I would, I would love to see a new Ronnie. Yeah, I can enjoy this master if I imagine that this is the master that John Sim regenerates into after Missy shoots him, like a master that's gone crazy from being killed by himself. Well, yeah, like one of one of the implications of this story is that it has almost literally made all your fan fiction real. Sure. Anybody your, can be the doctor. Your now. personal idea of, of what the doctor is like and how he or she dresses or, or, or whatever probably happened somewhere in the billions of years of time. And I mean, I think that interpretation is the only real addition that this retcon adds to Doctor Who, because we have the scene with Dr. Ruth that essentially says, oh, here's this huge reveal, but it doesn't really matter. You've never really defined yourself by who you were. It sort of kicks the legs out from under this as a a retcon that means anything for the narrative of Doctor Who. So the only reason it means anything is as a commentary on continuity and that we can make it whatever we want. Yeah, Uh, two things here. One, I thought it was rather significant that, like, the literal first regeneration of the Timeless Child is a black girl. I thought that was significant. Secondly, I hope to hell we don't actually see who these other dimensional people are. I don't want the mystery unraveled too much. I don't want, like, the Force turned into midichlorians. You know? (laughs) Well, really, this story is about a diverse people taken over and their power taken by white. Men. Is it? I mean, the the person who took the power over was a white woman, from what we saw, and is characterized as indigenous. I mean, I think you're right that it has a theme of colonialism in the background, but the, the characters are coded in such a complex way 
that I think it sort of mitigates against some of that. It does tell you how to view classic who. And if you view what this yeah. story presents through the lens of classic who, then it supports what Ariel's saying. But within this single story, it seems to be a little muddy. Yeah, I, I haven't worked out the ideology of what I think a lot of this is. I don't like it. I think that's probably fair to say. I, a couple episodes ago, we talked about what I think of narratives that sort of disassociate themselves from normal human birth, life, death narratives into, I guess, all stories can happen and you can just pick and choose whatever sort of story you want to exist in this sort of temporal space. I don't particularly like, but I haven't, I haven't worked out exactly what I believe that means in terms of what this does for Doctor Who. It's one thing to choose to have a woman doctor or a person of color playing the doctor. It's another thing to say there is an infinite number of doctors whose stories we haven't told yet. And you can just kind of do whatever you want within that undetermined space that feels like it's abdicating responsibility to me. It's sort of like the all lives matter version of <laughs> Doctor Who narrative. I don't... All regenerations matter. Yeah, no, I, I, I do sort of feel that way. I think it's soft liberalism to a degree, you know? It's not taking a, a stand. It's uh, it's narratively of... regressive, if not politically regressive, because it, it takes the stakes out of a lot of stuff. If the Doctor can show up anywhere... Because I tend to agree that, you know, continuity is not a big deal. If you if you change continuity, you throw it out the window, that's fine with me if you replace it with something that is narratively progressive, as in, like, great stories can come out of this. We can move forward. Yeah, I don't, I don't have any, like, really 100% thoroughly thought out ideas about this, but it just, it doesn't seem... This is a podcast, Pat. That's what you were supposed to have. <laughs> it doesn't it seem... It was your one job. It doesn't seem affirmative to me in any way, right? To say that there was a new doctor during the time war who was John Hurt, who did these things and, you know, was damaged because of it is a statement. You make a narrative statement and by implication, a political statement that this is what the doctor is now. To say that there's an infinite number of vague doctors that existed, I assume, before William Hartnell, it's just squishy to me. I don't it touches on things that I don't like about modern fandom to some degree. And I kind of find it a little politically suspicious, <laughs> but, but again, my, my thoughts have not been, been totally worked out. So it also so, feels like it gives permission for the writers to write whatever they want to write. And, and they don't need to follow the importantly previously set rules or as Joshua says, if they're going to change them, justify them, make it a solid choice. Mm-hmm. It just seems like it leaves room for, not lazy story writing, but story writing as they please. Yeah, I guess if you're just kind of taking down the parameters of what the story can be, I don't know. And, and, and now I'm sounding like an old fogey who is like, don't write fan fiction about Doctor Who or something. But it is. Well, uh, I wrote three-fourths of a Doctor Who novel once that I thought was pretty damn good. And then there was an episode of Doctor Who that happened that nullified what I was writing. And there was no way I could justify trying to find a way to make mine work. So I didn't finish it. Because- well, and the importance of fan fiction to Doctor Who is, it, it, I mean, it's central. Lots of fan writers have wound up working on the story over the years and making new stories out of it. And, and there's even that great episode that is a fan story. Isn't it the one with the girl from Harry Potter, uh, uh, 
Moaning Myrtle or whatever. Wasn't that originally a fan? Oh, there was story? a contest for a fan to create the monster who became the absorbable off or whatever it was. So it oh. was a contest for fans. But it, I mean, that essentially is then fan fiction incorporated into the actual text of Doctor Who. And, and there was a there was a fan contest to create a uh, TARDIS console that was used in in the Doctor's wife in that kind of weird secondary half TARDIS that the 11th Doctor throws together. I'm by no means denigrating the contribution of fans and fan fiction to Doctor Who, which is, as I say, absolutely central to it. Um, but I guess for me, this has sort of hit a point where it has dissolved all the walls of what mm-hmm. Doctor Who is and what it can be. And so yeah. that that diminishes the stakes of any particular Doctor yeah. Who story for me. I agree. Can we talk about the ending, too? Because I, I had a thing to say about the ending before we wrap it up. Oh, and and quickly, I should say that there are references to Percy Shelley's poem Ozymandias and Walt Whitman's I Contain Multitudes were also very shallow in this episode. And, and I'm, I'm obliged to say that as the English literature guy on the podcast. Uh, so, But we'll pass over that. But the moral choice at the end that the master oh, yeah. con- confronts the doctor with is to blow up the Gallifreyans, uh, the Cybermen, and the master, or the universe is at significant risk, like very significant risk. This is super similar to Genesis of the Daleks and the parting of the ways, the end of uh, the first Christopher Eccleston season. But, you know, in the first case in Genesis, Tom Baker is relieved to not to ultimately have to make that choice. It's taken off the table for him and he's relieved by it. In the second case, Eccleston fails to blow up the Daleks because his personal brokenness can't bring him to kill on that scale anymore. And that's a meaningful character moment. But here I'm not, totally sure what happens Jodie Whittaker refuses to do it but then when Barristan Selmy comes in and says I'm gonna do it she's basically like okay you go ahead and do it and I'm gonna I'm just gonna run it's her moral out I didn't do it yeah that's totally shallow I mean that's how I read it of course I thought I read it as the master one he even says it I won even if you blow me up now or if she doesn't I think he won he put her in this no-win situation. She backs down. She uses another human as her literal and figurative shield and walks away. And I mean, if they were willing to explore that, I'm kind of fascinated by that. But I think we're supposed to just be relieved she has an out. And we're supposed to think I, she's heroic because she couldn't do it. Whereas I didn't think she was heroic at all. I thought it was cheap. Absolutely well, not. I agree. Her depression upon reaching the TARDIS again just has to be the result of her shame at her own cowardice, right? That's the only interpretation that I can put on what just happened. I had more of a problem with like the cliffhanger. It felt like after something this momentous that, you know, maybe like just be nice to the doctor and let her have time to catch her breath. Don't instantly teleport her into a prison. I think there's a reference to Runaway Bride because she does the double what that Tenet did when the uh, Titanic crashed through the TARDIS. So I think the signal is that this is going to be lighthearted and fun. So we are giving you a break. Wow. Deep cut there, Josh. I am a little burned out with Gallifrey getting burned up all the time. Oh, yeah. I mean, if you count the novels, this has got to be like, what, six times? I personally find the Doctor a lot more interesting with the Time Lords and Gallifrey existing. Parents that he rebels against. Yeah. 
Have you noticed that moral calculation fails when the master is around too? Like we've known this entire season that he's killed apparently billions of people on Gallifrey. He killed everyone there. That's barely talked about, except in very practical terms, like I kept their bodies around so that I can make them into Cybermen. And this happens a lot with the master. When the doctor runs across him, it's like, oh, I'm going to stop your evil plan. And not like, as I would imagine that you and I would react, the people on this podcast would react yeah. if the master were yeah. to say, I killed 7 billion peoples or whatever. Yeah. Holy shit, you're history's yeah. greatest monster. I have to kill you oh, as quickly as possible. It, it, such, I will it, kill it, you right it, now. We were friends once. No, you just committed genocide on your own people and killed them all. Yeah, not it, the first time it, either. Yeah, it gets into that thing a lot of science fiction gets into, like like these problems of scale where, you know, you say, I, you know, I killed 7 billion people and it's such a huge number, it just kind of doesn't register yeah. exactly. You know, I've never really thought of this before, but but it, the, the doctor is always more reactive to the master. Like the master does something horrible, and the doctor stops him from doing something more horrible. And uh, you know, he's not proactive at stopping the master particularly, but that that's kind of opening up a hole. Yeah. But she doesn't even stop him this episode. She just finds an actor from Game of Thrones to die for her. <laughs> <laughs> There's enough of them, so. Yeah. <laughs> They're very accustomed to dying in Game of Thrones. So, yeah. Well, let's do final verdict on this episode. I'm going to say plunge her down. I, I mean, it's fascinating because it, it makes such, I think, egregious mistakes and miscalculations. So I think I was pretty much sucked into it. Uh, but it was more because I was in, in, in awe of its mistakes. <laughs> There's a lot about this episode that I actually like a lot, like Sasha Dewan. I think he's terrific in it. Mm-hmm. And I sort of admire the audacity, as you said, of like, re- we're going to fundamentally rewrite Doctor Who history. And we're going to have tons of clips of Brain of Morbius incorporated into this episode, as well as all the uh, other Doctors. But they could have done everything exactly the same if they had somehow done it with some wit. I think that's kind of what I miss about Doctor Who is wit. Like on the one hand, you have cleverness. And on the other hand, you have jokiness. And somewhere in the middle is wit. And the show doesn't always get those calculations right. And I don't expect calibrated perfection with every line of dialogue. But Chibnall is just not a great writer. And he never hits the right notes for me. So Witless. Uh, when you have He's a good witless. actor, yeah, witless. Yeah. When you have a good actor like Sasha Dewan or like Peter Capaldi, could have knocked some of the stuff out of the park. But my my plunger is drooping. You guys, it's just it's drooping. The more I talk about it, so I think I'm going to draw the veil over this and just say plunger down. I like the idea of the origin of the Time Lords. I like the idea of them stealing that ability from somebody else. I could erase everything else in this episode and keep that idea, and my plunger would be up. But the overall rest, all of it together is a plunger down. I'm, I'm a plunger up. I, and I think part of that is that I was so braced for Chris Chibnall to write, like, uh, you know, an, an exceedingly terrible season finale. I, I didn't find it exceedingly terrible. I, I was, you know, honestly pretty taken up by it. And I thought the boldness of it was kind of uh, fun. I went away with kind of a positive sense for it. Uh, in general, although I, I was, despite the fact I was kind of mad at the the Missy erasure and like, oh God, it's the Cybermen again, and oh God, Gallifrey's destroyed again. But even with all of those uh, elements, I still went away th- thinking like, oh wow, okay, cool. 
a chapter has been written and there's new chapters to be written in the future. I, I had a, an okay, decent reaction to it. God bless you, Calvin. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. It's not boring. I'll you give it that. Heart. It, is, it is not boring. I wasn't, like, annoyed. I will be annoyed for you, my brother. <laughs> well, okay. I weirdly am now questioning everything because so often I feel like there have been times when you've been unhappy, Kelvin, and, and the fact yeah. that this, this is a plunder up for you throws my entire world into doubt, I think. <laughs> Nothing I mean, makes sense anymore. I mean, what is a plunger? Like a, <laughs> you know, a zero degree angle plunger up. It's, you know, sort of a 45 degree angle. Well, despite the fact that we have not all been in the room with each other, there have been many moments in this in which we harmoniously loved or disliked things in ways I think we maybe haven't before. I have been surprised at some of the unanimous opinions that we've had and then really touched by some of the ones we haven't. Oh, well. With that heartwarming, tiny moment, I'm going to say thank you all so much for listening. I'm Ariel. I'm Pat. I'm Joshua. And I am Kelvin. And we're saying... Get out of my Surprise, we're back. We lost Ariel uh, to the Jadoon. Uh, she has apparently committed some crimes that she has not... Uh, been honest with us about uh there's a backstory there and we're gonna find it out and uh, we'll get back to you on it but uh she is gone but that's really appropriate that she was kidnapped by the jadoon because we are back to discuss the new year's eve special revolution of the daleks um so it'll just be the three of us but i think we can handle it guys i, th- I think we're, we're more than capable of handling on uh, a dalek revolution <laughs> Well, it didn't seem that hard to handle for anybody involved. It really really didn't, did it? (laughs) Can I start us on a personal note here? (laughs) I didn't watch this one right away when it was aired on New Year's Day. I I didn't get around to it until the end of January 2021, because the first part of January 2021 had me filled with anxiety as related to Trump's stupid fucking insurrection, and I wasn't in the mood for manic new who. And so... By the time I got around to watching it toward the end of the month, I think I liked it a lot more than I would have otherwise. This is sort of a theme with me with New Doctor Who. The second time through, I tend to like the episodes more than I do the first time, I think, because my anxiety level about if it's going to go crazy off the rails has reduced. And Revolution of the Daleks really benefited from that, even up to and including Chris Noth's character, the Donald Trump character, which I... Long-time listeners will remember me totally loathing uh, the first time he showed up in the Spider episode. But I don't know, maybe uh, he was just downplaying those elements a little bit more, or maybe I was even just a week or so of post-Trump life. He was not as obnoxious as he was in... uh, I thought he was actually pretty funny, actually. I I liked him up to the moment he tried to sell out the Earth to the Daleks. I was... (laughs) It, it was the most surprising thing about the episode is how much I actually liked Chris Knopf's villain character. I, I It was the last thing I expected. I love Chris Knotts. I just think his character is ridiculous. Oh, it's, yeah, 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 yeah. It should never have existed in the first place. It's no, just, I don't mean it as naturalistic. I just think it's one of those characters who falls somewhere in between not being amusing, but not fun to dislike just merely being annoying to me personally it's not quite 
like a parody satire thing. It's not like broad enough for that, but it's not like interesting enough to be like a like a regular villain. <laughs> it was weird how many things this episode brought back that did not strike me as things that needed to be brought back. Like <laughs> the the pating is in a cage. I liked the pating. I'm a pating fan, as you know. <laughs> I think what annoyed me a lot about it was like, okay, we have the 13th Doctor is in space jail. For a thousand years. And nothing ha- comes of it. Jack Harkness shows up, cool, and he's like, did something where he's been in jail for 19 years trying to get close to her. And, and then they have like a quickie escape and and that's it. And it was just like this lame cliffhanger from the, the previous season that goes nowhere, isn't developed, isn't like what the story is even. And it just underscores the disservice that I think Chibnall did, not just to Jodie Whittaker, but to the first female doctor. And that is this desire to make her defining characteristics, passivity and family. That just seems so (laughs) off. And this is a doctor who apparently, if we are to believe these opening sequences, goes to prison and just, sits there when the voice says it's exercise time oh exercise when it's sleep time oh i'll just tell myself harry potter stories compared to the 12th doctor the man doctor who gets to spend a thousand years punching his way through a wall of diamond you know it's like why are you doing this to your character it it does seem weird that, that that she doesn't get out on her own i mean it's well, a, a, it's an excuse to bring back Captain Jack Harkness, which I was fine with. But again, they don't really do anything with Captain Jack. Jack can still end up rescuing her, but don't show her as so compliant and defeated for no reason. I mean, I guess we can backfill and say that she tried all these crazy doctor things that would have been far more interesting to have actually seen. Yeah, right. Uh, and then she finally gave up. But also, the doctor giving up. Seems like a story. I think it was a Eighth Doctor yeah. novel story. It was his psychological trauma of finally being put in a prison that he couldn't escape. Uh, and I thought they were going to lift something from that story. There's a lot to unpack here. I'm in a weird position here of of finding the storyline less gendered than you are, Josh, because I find it I think more lazy than actually implying something about the femaleness of the Doctor's character. But I don't think we're really disagreeing here. It's just. No. Uh, you're right about the the eighth doctor novels used to put eight in prison all the time seeing i did it kate orman's novel uh he's also a saudi arabian prison in interference for almost two books and uh he of course gets exiled to earth and loses his tardis and his memory for an entire arc of the eighth doctor book so there's a lot to draw on there but this seemed very thin in comparison to that and my negative response isn't to the prison scene by itself it's just that um it's the continuation of those characteristics being heaped upon Jodie Whittaker and the fact that the previous season seemed to suggest that they were starting to move away from it and I feel like this depiction is a really strong movement backwards instead of forward it grabs the emotional themes and it jerks them around in ways that I didn't find convincing whatsoever um, there's no particular reason why she's there for a thousand years, for one thing. Um, it, she never mentions it to her companions. One would think that she might have said something like that. They never ask. She says, I was in space jail. No one says, how long were you there or whatever. Instead, it's it, they immediately judge her for not coming to see them for 10 months, which is a 
plot element stolen from the first Christopher Eccleston season, where it was clearly related to Eccleston's thoughtlessness. But here it exists in a sort of ambiguous zone between whether the TARDIS just kind of screwed up or whether she wasn't thinking it through. But they clearly blame her for it. And you're right that that is what sort of breaks the fam apart in a completely arbitrary way. I mean, one would think that they would understand the difficulties of time travel to such a degree at this point to possibly give her the benefit of the doubt, but no one even stops to think. And this is even worse, much worse to my mind, was the conversation she has with Ryan later on, where it's about halfway through the episode. And he's like, oh, so how did things go on Gallifrey? Uh, Well, all life on Gallifrey was destroyed. So billions of my fellow Time Lords were all completely eradicated. He literally does not respond to that. The next thing he asks is about the Master. And then he asks, oh, well, how are you doing? Um, You have avoidance issues, essentially, is what what he talks about. And, like, this is completely... I don't know. I'm I'm losing my words, Josh, because this (laughs) this is just not something that human beings would actually talk about. Oh, you know, billions of my fellow citizens were brutally killed. Oh, uh, you you really need to deal with your issues better. What are you talking about? It shows that New Who can't quite handle that scale of violence and horror, yet it always seems to want to dip into it for uh, the emotional impact, yet it's too outside of the emotional framework of the television show, or, or like you say, perhaps human experience, to be able to actually utilize it as a narrative later. I tend to overgeneralize with things like this, because you're totally right. I mean, New Who can't do it, but it's not like a lot of genre fiction is doing a lot better. I'm thinking of The Force Awakens, for example, where they blow up a planet full of billions of people practically at the start of the movie, and then it's never referred to for another two movies. And instead, the big question becomes whether Ray is going to get together with cute, sad boy Kylo Ren, who's like the biggest genocidal maniac in the history of the universe. (laughs) Alderaan was blowing up. And again, I I find myself overgeneralizing into stories that are made by corporate entities like Disney or the BBC, I guess, in this case, and stories that are written about real humans by real humans about recognizably real human emotions and experience. Is it the corporations or is it the tastes of the audience to the degree that the stakes have to be just unimaginably, literally unimaginably high? I I think it's just trends. I mean, like, you know, the Marvel movies and things like, oh, not everything has to be Infinity War and Endgame level. And I'm kind of exhausted by that and i just want to see like you know smaller scale genre stories now like rather rather badly i just want to see can spider-man just stop dr octopus from robbing a bank <laughs> you know this can that happen i don't know i'm with kelvin here and again i'm overgeneralizing, but i sort of think that it pushes the limits of what adventure or genre storytelling can actually do because they're too hero centric. They're about people who come in and they save the day. And if they save the day, then the stakes have to be very high. Well, um, are the stakes high enough that billions of people have just been killed? Well, then that's a story about one person's life at the expense of the stories of millions of people who were, who were killed. And now we're getting into kind of like colonial territory. You know what I mean? It's the stories of the people who survive, who did the, the action things as opposed to the nameless millions or thousands of millions or billions of people who suffered and died in the background of the story. And that starts to leave a bad taste in your mouth. 
especially when somebody like Ryan doesn't even acknowledge that a billion people just die on Gallifrey. You know what I mean? It's problems of your little with you and your father are kind of immaterial to me compared to that. But that's not what the story wants to tell. Again, this series has done such a disservice to characters. Like Ryan is just one of the worst characters in New Who. And there is no reason to make him such a jerk. There's just no way around it. I was watching this with my son and we're just like, they are determined right to the last moment, his last appearance on screen to just make him a dick. To the point that, I'm sorry, the last montage of him falling off a bike just made me laugh uproariously. It was such an off note. The sappy music, the ghost of his grandmother appearing and his grandfather pushing him on a bike. It was like some sort of like Jerry Lewis telethon video. <laughs> like Jerry put some poor kid with MS on a bike for a photo shoot and was knocking him off of it. It was just so tone deaf. I couldn't believe it. It is really trite. I barely focused on Ryan. My big irritation was they never gave Yaz anything to do. Like she just simply exists in the background. And and another character to pine for the doctor. Yeah, no, I guess she's in love with her. And well, she'll have her chance now because she's the only companion, right? Yeah. So I feel like it was inching uh, in the previous season towards something a little stronger, a little more fun. And this was definitely a big step back for me. Well, I think so, too. I mean, it, it exists because it needs to fill a slot on New Year's Day because we expect Doctor Who to have a slot there. But it's not a yeah. it's not a story that anybody needed to have told. And it wasn't elevated like uh, Twice Upon a Time. Is that the name of the Peter Capaldi's last one? That mm-hmm. That's a, not a story that needed to be told either. That was just um, Stephen Moffat rehashing old stuff, too. But it was elevated by some good performances and some good writing. And so it at least justified its existence. As far as I'm concerned, I mean, yeah. I can say good things about this episode. There are things I like. I liked Captain Jack. I just kind of like him. I like Fun Jack and not Moody Torchwood Jack. And yes, so yes, yes. Like I said, I enjoyed Chris Noth. Weird. I didn't expect to do that. I liked his line. We don't have a facility in Osaka, which was so reminiscent of Jimmy Dean's line from Diamonds Are Forever, Baja, I haven't got anything in Baja that I couldn't get out of get out of my head for days. That's a deep cut for yeah. James Bond fans, but, uh, but it really struck me. I, I did like the, the the return of the actual Dalek, not not in the casing, but just the the tentacle awful thing that like controlling the guy. As long as we're saying things we liked, I, I will say at the heart of this story. Well, not the heart. It was tacked on way at the end. I wish it were the heart of the story. Uh, Was the doctor's decision to take the nuclear option and call the Daleks in on the other Daleks. Like that to me would be a great story. But the problem is it wouldn't be an emotional story. It'd be a great action story with with a little bit of a a moral component to it of like, oh, which is the worst evil. Well, he just... It's a good story, but again, they're trying to jam all this stuff into one episode. So it's like, you know, five, 10 minutes, which makes it just kind of a shrug. It implies a lot of questions about the Daleks that have been implicit uh, for a few seasons now. Like, how big a threat are they? Really? Yeah, I know. That's the other thing. It's like. Now that the Time Lords are dead, are, are they just going to take over the all of time and space? Because they seem pretty robust. Well, you know, and again, it's like one of these things where like, okay, thousands of Daleks have invaded Earth. They're killing a bunch of people. They get eliminated in kind of like a 
I, I don't want to say a sad trombone thing, but just like a boom kind of like way. Think of the Daleks making a sad trombone noise. <laughs> There's this horrible galactic threat. They get eliminated really easily. They assassinate the prime minister of Great Britain, like on international TV. And again, it's like nothing happened. I will There's say, no I, consequence to this. I, I did appreciate the Daleks assassinating the Theresa May figure on yeah. Amtime TV because it made me nostalgic for the Russell Davies episodes where he <laughs> killed like a prime minister every season. It, 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 <laughs> it was like a, it, it's almost become a joke in Doctor Who, like, oh, the prime minister got killed. Well, it's actually really, I, I would say, uh, kind of unusual for the Chris Chibnall era. I know we're only talking about two seasons, but I'm going to use that word that Josh hates. Uh, it, it's <laughs> such a neoliberal thing that I, I, people who would normally meet bad ends, like the Chris Knopf, Donald Trump character, just kind of fail upward here because I think he is yeah, too good for them. I think or, that was my least favorite moment in the, in the story. Yeah, yeah, no. no he, he, he winds up with the entire world thinking he's like the biggest hero. He's going to run for president, right? Yeah, big joke after four fucking years of Donald Trump existing in this country. But see, I don't actually think that Chris Chibnall thinks Donald Trump is cute. I just think he's bad at satire. I don't think that's a hidden message or deep beliefs on his part. I think he's just a bad writer who puts out confused messages and contradicts himself and says what he doesn't necessarily mean. I think he's obsequious toward capitalists and and monarchs and stuff like that. Like Alan Cummings, King James and the Witchfinders episode, like really came off as sort of a charming individual. Unusually so, considering the amount of misogynist murder he was endorsing in that episode. And we've already talked about uh, Thomas Edison, who history has regarded in kind of a much more poor light than the Doctor Who episode from this season. Not to be too overly... Uh, democratic socialist uh, about the whole thing josh but But that's your uh, brain i think think it's (laughs) inherent to chris chibnall's character i just think he likes rich people malcolm hulk is spinning in his grave (laughs) yeah i I think for doctor who are spinning in their grave well i think you're kind of both right really i mean he's trying to do all this stuff but there isn't enough of any of the bits in it to like really have any meaning or anything it just I always hear this as a criticism of, of, of science fiction, you know, like, well, it's like, it's like a kid playing with toys. It's like, and this happens and then this happens and then this happens and then this monster comes in, this happens. And I that always like really irritated me because like, that's literally just story. This happens and then this happens and this happens, you know, you know, now, now I can kind of see what they're getting at. It doesn't feel like it's connected in any but way. That's what craft does is it hides the, and then this happened and this happened and you, yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't see that. And the problem is he just seems like a kid playing with action figures and it doesn't have any coherence. And I think it is giving him way too much credit to see a intentional message of any kind underneath any of his writing. It's It's just too haphazard. It contradicts itself. I think it's instinctive, Josh. I think I don't think it's intentional in that way. I think it's just sort of natural way in which his imagination goes, at least judging from these last couple of seasons. I I think Kelvin's right that this is a very good example of just one damn thing after another, you know, and it's why bad genre stuff can only play with themes and never really address them. This whole thing is about security services and Daleks as cops. Which is alarming as hell. It is 2020 and 2021, guys. This is extremely topical stuff and nothing is whatsoever is done with it. It's completely shallow. 
And so the only thing I, I'm left with is trying to parse out sort of the instinctive impulses of the person who wrote it. And that's where I'm getting all this kind of neoliberal stuff. Well, well like most, uh, you know, shapeless bad things, it's, it's ultimately just kind of a Rorschach blot. And you can just like read whatever things you dislike about genre fiction or science fiction or, or society into it. I mean, it, it just wasn't a good story. It just wasn't a good episode. Well, that sounds like a plunger's down to me from you, Kelvin. I, it is, yeah. Oh, it's it's a plunger way down. Like that, it broke off. <laughs> it, it, my plunger is. It's not horizontal. It's lower than horizontal, but I. Uh, Weirdly, I probably liked this more than both of you guys. I, that is weird, yeah. I, I can like pieces of right-wing fiction. I like a lot of them, actually. Oh, yeah. No, <laughs> there's, there's a lot of very, you know, arguably pretty conservative-themed things that I've enjoyed. Robert Holmes wrote some of the best Doctor Whos ever, and he, he was mostly just complaining about his tax assessment. But Ch- Chris Chibnall is no Robert Holmes, I got to tell you. So that was our special addenda. <laughs> To Jody Whitaker's second season. This has been Get Off My World. I'm Pat. I'm Kelvin. And I'm Joshua. And we're saying Get Off My World. It's a very zoomy Get Off My World. Can you hear me?